The old world is ending. And we have the opportunity to rethink everything. This is a show about the systemic problems in our world. And the real solutions we have today. To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society. That sustains all life. You may think it's an impossible dream. But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare. We're your hosts, Matt Holton, Amanda Smith, and Zachary Marlowe. And together, we can move past this economic absurdity and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are Mindless Society. Communism shows shows chaos in politics. Bureaucratism, the first cousin of socialism. Hmm. The left should be happy with Biden. The left should be ecstatic that President Joe Biden has given it everything it wanted. The left likes inflation. It reduces the value of old money by printing lots of new money. Those richer who have it lose the value of their money. Those poorer who don't have it probably didn't earn it, any money, suddenly do. When combined with low interest rates, inflation roars even louder. Not even President Jimmy Carter as a Democrat been so insistent on inflating the money supply. Wow, this Biden guys he's really a nightmare. He canceled federal energy leases. He shut down drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. He canceled pipelines and warned the industry of uh, Biden illegal immigrants. Oh, my God. Well, hang on. What is inflation? What, what, is, uh, what are interest rates? Hey, wait a minute. What the, f- what the hell is money? What is money? What is this thing? What, what, what is, I, I just realized I have no idea what money is. I, we use that word every day. I don't know what it means. I don't think anybody else does. So welcome to the show. Today's guest, Steve Grumbine, host of Real Progressives, uh, is here to talk to us about money or, or uh, a theory that's going around, a crazy crackpot theory they call modern monetary theory. So, Steve, tell us, what the hell is money? <laughs> so, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. But uh, money is simply a, a unit of measure. It's a, like an inch or a pound. Um, and the money that we have today is typically seen as state money. And state money is merely a tax credit. The state uh, issues money to provision itself. And for you to find any value in having that money that they've issued, they put a tax on it. And the tax is payable only in the currency. So the, the, the nation state that creates the currency, creates it out of thin air, can never run out of it. It creates it freely at will. It imposes a tax not for funding purposes, but to re- create a, a, an obligation that requires you to use it so it maintains its value. And that's how the cycle goes. The government spends that money into the economy, and then the government taxes it out and deletes it. And the cycle continues in a circuit format in perpetuity. And that's, that's the essence of modern monetary theory. So, I mean, basically, you're, the, the essence of MMT is that, you know, 
money is bullshit, right? I mean, we can print as much money or create as much money as possible. Money is a creature of law. Money is a creature of the state, and it serves the purpose of being an actual unit of measure, like an inch or a pound. Is it bullshit? It's it's a it's a law. It's a patent. It's a it's a monopolist, <laughs> uh, money monopolist uh, way of a government provisioning itself. Um, so you can call it bullshit. You can call it a thing of someone's imagination, but it has very real consequences if you ignore this imaginary thing uh, because it's a law. And that's the most important thing. Being a creature of law, its establishment is based in law. And so therefore the creator of the law, the U.S. government in this case, or any other nation state that has uh, that kind of uh, money, that has money period that it creates, um, like the UK or Russia or Australia or Canada, or Japan, all these folks, they, they all have the exact same scenario. It's just the man-made rules underneath that come and go. But the concept of money, um, it, it, it's useless. It's like toilet paper until it has the force of law behind it. Once it has the force of law behind it, that's a totally different animal now. It's no longer just what, who cares if you have confidence in it? Let's put it that way. Your confidence will come when the handcuffs come because you didn't pay your taxes or you didn't file your return or whatever. So it's got real world consequences. And being that it's generated from the state, it has real world legal consequences. So uh, I feel like the, the, one of the one of the essential truths that uh, the MMT community and the perspective of MMT is putting forth is that sovereign currency issuers can print or spend into existence as much money as they need to do what they do. Can you can you explain this? Because this is it seems like you get so pissed off in your videos and on Twitter because it's just like you're constantly and we're in the same boat there, just dealing with lies and delusions and mythology you know, theocracy of money and moneyism and capitalism, all of these things are essentially belief systems that are just reinforced ad infinitum until people really accept them as law. And so like this absurd little newspaper here is talking about, oh, uh, printing more money is going to devalue money. And you know, can you just kind of just explain how that all functions, really? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different things to unpack there. But at, at a surface level, you know, the, the idea here is, is that there's always a stream of money coming into the economy, always. And there's always a stream of money going out of the economy and deletion of those taxes. I, I, this is probably the wrong way of saying it, but it's something that I've said many times, and it, it worked for me to make me understand. The government only spends a dollar one time. That's it. it. The government never spends a dollar twice. It spends it once into the economy. Once it's in the economy, it's in the private sector, it spins around, does its business, and when it's taxed out of the economy, it's done. It's like the dark and light crystal. They come together and it's over. They, they did their job, right? So that's that's in essence. Go ahead. Yeah, so I have a quick question. So I was I was, I was was listening to some of your stuff and watching it, uh, reading some of the articles you got, and everything I'm seeing online says that when, you know, like the when money is taxed on a federal level, that the, that that money is spent 
on, you know, things like healthcare and social security and, you know, other various other programs, but you're saying that that money actually disappears. So right. I'm wondering how that is and, and, and where's, where's the proof of that essentially? Cause like I was trying to Google that and verify that and I couldn't find anything that actually was that I saw that was verifying that somehow I was just curious how you came to that conclusion. And if there's something that we can see, you know, that actually, you know, will verify that for us. Sure. So first things first, uh, the most important white paper you'll ever read is by a lady named Stephanie Kelton. And at the time when she wrote it, it was Stephanie bell. And when she wrote it, it's a peer reviewed white paper. You can find it on Levy Institute's uh, website very easily, but you can find it elsewhere as well. Hmm. And it's do tax or can taxes and bonds finance government spending? Hmm. And she goes through the entire process of showing how this works. And in the end, it, she comes to the conclusion empirically, peer reviewed shows it can't be done. It, it's impossible. It's not how it works. So then the Bank of England actually wrote a great paper uh, explaining the way that money works. And the Bank of England, this was actually Beardsley Rummel uh, also wrote about this in 1946, former chairman of the Fed, uh, wrote this paper as well, saying that taxes for revenue are obsolete. And that was in 1946. That's hmm. even before Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. Back in colonial times, they knew this as well. In colonial times, they would literally use tobacco and these tally sticks and stuff like that. And when they were done, they would literally burn the money. They would just get rid of it that way. They would you know, destroy it. Now what happens is, is that when the government actually taxes that money, that money is in turn, it's a digital currency, and it is destroyed. It's just zeroed out because... What happens is in double entry accounting, the government, when it spends money into the economy, it creates a reserve equal to the dollar spent into the economy. So the reserve is nothing more than interbanking dollars to help clear payments within the system. The government, in turn, has to pay interest on reserves. This is a way of keeping money moving, to keep the velocity of money moving. Otherwise, money just sits there, gets stagnant. And so this interest is meant to also serve as sort of a tax to drive the currency through the system to make people continue to use it and not let it just get, you know, stationary and sedentary. Um, but the Bank of England's paper is extremely explicit. And in fact, one of the things was that people often say, hey, they're lending out deposits. Well, we know that banks don't lend deposits. Loans make deposits, but banks actually create an IOU denominated in the government's account because banks can't create money in the sense of net financial assets, which means that when the government spends money into the economy, it just is there. There's no need to pay it back. It's not like, oh my God, what are we going to do? This is some burden, some debt. People save that money. They hold on to it. They do whatever they spend it on things. However, a bank loan, which is what 97, you see so many people say 97% of the money in the economy is bank money. What's well, bank loan money, right? And bank loans, what do they do? Take their keyboard, they create a deposit into an account, and they create that deposit into the account. New money is there. However, the interest is all the bank gets to keep, which is money that you're paying back that is already in the economy. In other words, it's not freshly created money. It's money that's already existing. 
Mm-hmm. So when they when they pay the loan back, the loan zeroes out and is wiped out and is no longer that money doesn't exist anymore. The bank sure. keeps the uh, the interest. So ultimately, between the Bank of England's documents about this, um, our own Stephanie Kelton's documents that show this, and quite frankly, there's a bunch of others that show how the the banking system works. A gentleman named Eric Tamoyne traces this out. Um, in his uh, money and banking uh, uh, books, et cetera. It's all very simple. A fiat, this is what every country does. It's not just the U.S. It's not like some well, secret that the U.S. has. Sure. I, I mean, because the way I understood it before was that when that, essentially like when the Federal Reserve, when the debt is paid back to the Federal Reserve, then then that's kind of when the money essentially ceases to exist. And, but you're saying it's just when it's taxed, period, then that money ceases to so – it's just, just essentially this. deleted at that point. The Treasury and the it's Fed like have a consolidated account mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's digital to begin with. It doesn't right. – it, it yeah. has no um, – it never really had a substance to begin with, you know. It's, right, it's like, exactly. Right, right. Like a friend of mine was a banker. Speculation to some degree. On his, day, on his first day at the bank, they came up to him, or this lady was walking him through it, like, and she just said, "Oh, and here's how you make a deposit. Here's how you, you know, change someone's account." And she just just pressing numbers in the in the keyboard, and it's just like, you know, warping reality. You know, it's like, oh, let's make let's make this person a billionaire. Clickety 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 clack. Let's make this person mm-hmm. homeless. Clickety 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 clack. <laughs> that's that's basically <laughs> the substance that our monetary system really has. And as you pointed out before, that money itself is a debt. It's not. It's that it's that is its foundation. And I think that's one of these really deep uh, elements of our culture that reinforces this parasitism. That the money in our account, is, essentially, it's a zero sum game. It's coming out of somebody mm-hmm. else's life. What you're saying is essentially that as I mentioned a moment ago, it seems that the money isn't, it doesn't exist in terms of accounting after it reaches, you know, after it trickles back up per se into the government, which is what we're taught happens. The taxes go into the government, which are supposed to pay for services for society abroad. Uh, And then they state that there's not enough money to pay for free healthcare for everyone. There's not enough money to build affordable housing. Uh, We have to have, yeah, I know. And and so what I really just want to say, uh, so people get the point, if I'm right, is that not only is money fake, and not only are all the narratives that we hear about it fake, but the government is literally saying we don't have enough money when the money isn't even the factor. And I want to um, reference one of the uh, comments in that uh, thread that Marlon mentioned you have pinned in your uh, Twitter account. And you say, why do people think that taxes fund federal programs? Being the richest country in the world is not about dollars. It's about real, uh, I'm sorry, available real resources. And so that just makes so much sense when um, when I read that you're uh, associated with this term austerity is murder, which I am biasly um, happy to hear because that's actually a term I've used in writing articles and talking about this, this phenomenon of sorts. Uh, austerity is a murder and on another level that we did not even perceive. And and, and in regards to Peter, I just have to think that that was probably the best way he knew how to describe what we know and what we've been taught. You know, I mean, that's probably just the closest that he and most people will ever come to truly understanding how money is weaponized against us. But you're bringing us this whole other level of how it's being used against us, this fake beyond fake beyond fake, um, as I said, psyop. On, on how money doesn't exist and the reasons they say they don't have enough money don't even exist. Well, 
Let, let's let's get a couple things clear because you know I I I was a former libertarian, a fa- former Ron Paul guy. I spoke the creature of Jekyll Isle lingo perfectly. I came from a zeitgeist kind of perspective, a Jacques Fresco, a zeit, you know that whole thing. I mean, I I I, I started there. And then I moved away from that as I started really digging into the mechanics of how the system works. And that's what pulled me into modern monetary theory. The idea that money is fake, it's just like as fake as any kind of law is fake. Is, you know, any kind of regulation is fake. It's, it's a patent. It's fake in terms of any patent being fake. It's, it's a, it's a unit of measure. An inch isn't fake. It's just not material. It's, it's a unit of measure. You know what I mean? Like a pound or, uh, you know, a liter. It's just another form of that. And so I think a lot of what's happening here is we get caught up in a commodity mindset where we're thinking the value of gold. Here, I've got gold. This is real in my mind. Somehow or another, this gold, it's real. But there's no one saying it's real in terms of a medium of exchange. Can you imagine carrying a backpack with nuggets of gold on your shoulder? I'd like to buy a chicken. Let me get a razor blade and scrape off enough gold dust. To get. It's stupid, right? It's, it's not going to work. So you know, think of money. Think of especially currency, state currency, as, as more of the government's tool for actually provisioning itself. There's a story that I use to explain this, and I I didn't I wish I created it. I'm not smart enough to create this, um, but Warren Mosler talked about the hut tax, and you know the in Africa it was like, hey, how do we get these people to do this stuff? And it's like, well, hey, we'll give you this this token if you'll come build us an aqueduct, or if you come build us a roadway, or you build us a a castle, or build us a whatever. The guy looks at it and is like, what am I going to do with this now? I think I'm going to go hang out with my family, go fishing and do whatever it is that I feel like doing. And the guy goes, yeah, you know, you're probably right. Well, I tell you what, how about if I put a 10 of these tacks on your hut there, what will you, what would you do? And the guy's like, well, how do I get those 10 things? It's like, funny, you should say that. I need to build an aqueduct. I need to build a standing army. I need to build a castle. I need to build whatever. And then all of a sudden, the guy does what he has to do, gets his 20 tokens, pays 10 of them back to the king in payment for, you know, his hut tax. But the hut tax wasn't meant to pay for the government spending. See, this is, this is the fundamental difference there. The government just needs a coercive mechanism, a, an mm-hmm. obligation payable only in that mm-hmm. unit of account. And then they, in turn, say, in order to get this unit of account to make the payment to keep your hut okay— you have to do X, Y, Z. Now, so there's a bunch of ways of getting to X, Y, Z, but we can talk about that. Go ahead, Marla. I was just going to say that you know uh, you would be an absolutely brilliant person if you made up that story because it's not a made-up story. It's history. It's the truth. And yeah. I, mean, I think yeah. perhaps one of the earliest issue, uh, instances of coinage in our society, in our history, was Alexander the Great creating this massive army that went so far beyond the reach of his campaign, the way that they could resource it. And so, you know, like you're saying, you know, they can't carry all their resources on their back. So they had to mint coinage. So coinage arose immediately parallel to these armies, these empires. So money is this story of violence 
violence. It is inherently a violent thing for them to colonize these people, destroy them. You know, this, this is going on like what we've done in Iraq. We destroy them and then we say, okay, now now we, you need to pay us to rebuild it. Now you need to pay us in this tax, this little coin, this little thing that has my face on it that says only that, that you can only pay to me in my currency. So it, it's completely on their terms. So, you know, the forms of extreme austerity that are going on in the world today, you know, uh, talk about the structural adjustment policies that are being instituted in, you know, third world nations or nations, you know, that are extremely resource rich, but don't have very many of those pictures of the emperor so that they, right. and then, you know, the institutions that control that money, that control that little coin, that little token that is so fluid and flexible, they say these are the terms and the terms are never work out in their favor. And so, Peoples had been crushed systematically for thousands of years by this substance, by this token, which I think is way beyond a, a unit of account. I mean, and just studying the effects that it has on people's brains, like holding money in your hand from the age of three years old has been observed to decrease empathy. And the more money, the more hmm. pictures of, of the emperor that someone has or the more numbers in their bank account, their ability to empathize and connect with other people decreases. Their need for other people decreases. So I think that this this substance that is so ethereal, that is so changeable, this monopoly money that we've created and given very, very deadly real value, you know, it, it's this social pollution that I think that, the, you know, that's one of the great uh, points of our show, of our movement, of our, you know, transition as a human species is to move beyond this. And I think that the MMT perspective of saying, not can we spend that, do we have the money for that, but do we have the resources for that, you know, is very, very powerful. I want to caution you. Um... I think of a hammer as a great metaphor for a unit of account. A hammer could make a beautiful home. It can build great pieces of art. Um, it can be used to dig a hole if needed. It can be used to do a number of things to build most majestic things ever. It can also be a weapon to kill your spouse when, you know, if they cheated on you or something like that. Now, the question becomes, is the inherent nature of a hammer that it's used to kill your spouse, is the inherent nature of the hammer to build beautiful, you know, structures? I, I say the issue is not the issue of the hammer. I think the issue is the issue of the wielder. Mm -hmm. And the point is, is that in a neoliberal framework, in a capitalist framework, there is one goal and one goal only. It's not about the money. It's about power. It's about control. It's about a number of things. And just like a murderer would see a hammer as a great opportunity to exact a price, in the hands of a carpenter, they're going to say, oh, my goodness, this is the most balanced hammer I've ever used. It's precise. It, it does what I need it to do. I love this hammer. So I'd be cautious to put the finger on the hammer. I would look at who the wielder is, and I would look at the system by which they choose to use their operating manual. An MMT perspective would tell you that money is the least important thing, but it is an inch or a pound or a unit of measure. So we are fundamentally approaching this by taking away that my precious kind of angle that creates that evil that you described. And we're instead trying to refocus that. Like one of the great statements that Stephanie Kelton talked about with the different bills, because let's be fair, if you want a Green New Deal, you want Medicare for all, you want to get rid of $2 trillion in student debt, you want to do all these majestic things with infrastructure bills and name it, right? If you want to do that and you want to claw away all that carbon out of the atmosphere, that we're talking about trillions of dollars that far exceed the measly 
300 and some billion that they just threw at the quote unquote inflation reduction act that does nothing but austerity baked into it. Okay. It's really a deficit reduction bill that they claim is doing something else. It's garbage. But the point I'm making is, is that if you think about money being the least important thing, like we say, did you start asking yourself, how are we going to resource this? Like a Medicare for all bill. Interestingly enough, Medicare for all, if you're actually a human being and not a partisan, and you're looking at the thing, is deflationary. So in an inflationary time, what might not be the best thing you ever did? Why not do a deflationary act like include Medicare for all? Why? Because there's a control competitor. It's never about the money. It has nothing to do with the money. The money is a way of keeping workers in a starvation position, in a position of lack of power, and making them have to deal with not just the government that is trying to provision itself, but because our government has been captured by big moneyed interests, by capital, okay? Let's go back to Marx. By capital, we are now dealing with a situation where instead of our government provisioning us, which is us, we the people, it should be. That's what it's supposed to be, theoretically, right? So our government is supposed to be representative of us, we the people. But if you look at our founding documents, we know that our government has always been founded to tend to private property and tend to capital, okay? So, so many things that we assume are just inherent, they're real, this is what it is, aren't so. The fact is, is that our government has been structured to take care of private property and capital from the minute it was conceived. Our government, the United States government, not all governments, okay, but our government in particular, and we have been the biggest neoliberal project on the planet. So, so much of the abuse that you see, so many of the things that you consider to be inherent to money are really not inherent to money, but more so to this Anglo-Euro fetish, if you will, that has come into the United States, the great libertarian project that is the U.S., and the exportation of the nastiness that is neoliberalism. And that is where you get your structural adjustments. That's where you get your IMF. That's where you get your World Bank. And that's where you get the the absolute debt peonage that goes on in the global south, who is being used as basically an open-air plantation for the global north. Gotcha. I you want to go first, Amanda? chomping at the bit. Uh, to, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll anybody, just, just piggyback off of it really quick. So again, being so very new at this and trying to wrap my head around it, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun because answers and solutions are usually what we address in the very end of the episode. But I have to ask at this point, if we were to see money as something such as the hammer you described, like neutral and power or whatever, how is it that you as a co-founder of Real Progressives and host of Macro and Cheese uh, go about explaining or the logistics of tangibly reducing what we see as inherent corruption associated with the dollar to better um, state that basically how do we go about helping society as a whole, as a collective, st- I'm sorry, stop valuing money and start valuing resources? How do we switch that paradigm? Is that what you're saying that we should do or am I still lost? We're, we're so close. Yeah. I mean, ultimately what we need to do is we need to get regular people, Jane and Joe public, to recognize that they've been lied to. We, we, that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. That epiphany is the catalyst for change. Once people realize that they've really been lied to, then it's a matter of taking that next step. And to my way of thinking, 
the natural next step for most people is they think they're going to vote their way to a better world. Suddenly they're just all wrapped up. Oh my God, if we just elect enough progressives, oh my God, if we just elect enough of this and the other, then we'll win this thing, right? Well, we've seen the squad basically not do anything for us. No offense to anybody that still has faith in them, you know, but they haven't done anything for us. We saw Bernie capitulate twice during elections, so we didn't get what we needed there either. Each time through this pass, if you will, we see that the electoral process doesn't solve our problems at all. In fact, it gets worse, right? So you start unpacking why that is. And, and it really comes into some of Marx's critique on capital, understanding the role of capital in society, not money, but capital and the ownership and the, the difference between labor and ownership. And these battles that go on back in the day when you had slaves, real slaves with the chattel slavery, where people were imprisoned against their will, separated from their families, et cetera. That was a little different because you were literally there at, you were considered property of that plantation owner and they could kill you if they wanted to, you were their property. Okay. Now we're in an open air plantation. They, they've no chains on our arms and stuff, but we've been chained to an austerity narrative, which is why I call it austerity is murder. Right. And if you think about mm -hmm. this, I, I think it's really, really important to note that there needs to be an anti-corruption movement as part of this next step, whatever that is. Uh, it, getting people to believe this stuff, though, forget the establishment. The establishment's laughing because we've got half the people running around talking about the Rothschilds, the other half of the people running over here saying my hard-earned tax dollars are being wasted. And we got so all these distractagons all over the place that don't really understand what they're saying, but they've got things to say. And they're loud, they're noisy. So the society is filled with bullshit, quite frankly. And so getting someone to trust what you're saying, to be able to do the research, listen to you, go through the steps, take the not you've got to get them to that point where they recognize that money is merely a unit of account that the government uses as a tax credit. Government issues tax credits. Think about this. If you go to a concert, right? What is, what, is, what is it you're getting when you pay your $50 for your ticket to go to that concert? Are you paying for the ticket? Oh my God, I got a ticket. And you just frame it on the wall and you're like, there's my Slipknot ticket. I just, there it is right there, <laughs> Slipknot. You're like, yeah, right? No, that ticket may be memorabilia for some other day to say, see, I went to the concert. But in reality, you're paying for the experience. And there's only 16,000 seats in there. So you're really not paying for the ticket. The ticket is just an entry fee into the, the thing. It's the same thing with cash. It's the same thing with money. Money serves as that token to get you access into the concert. It's not the money that's powerful. It's the concert that you're really gunning for. Same thing with a coat. You, take, you right. go to a, a play, you drop your coat off at the rack, they give you a coupon, right? You got a coupon. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means nothing. It means you've got a claim on the coat that you just left in the coat room, right? You trade that coat ticket in. Where did that coupon come from? Is that money? Is that It's a form of money, right? Just like a, a stamp is a form right. of money. All these things are a claim on something else. And so really, at the end of the day, when we have agreements with each other, if I have an agreement with you, money is a, is a legal tender to be able to perform that relationship, to be able to perform that transaction. 
And so I, I think that understanding that money is not just some vaporous thing or whatever, it, it really is a law. And because we have a government that is corrupt and because we have a government that has been compromised and bought out by capital, not bought out in terms of money, that these people are going to be rich because of their resources, not because of their cash. In the end, I mean, their gold-plated walls and their their expansive real estate that they own and all the minerals in the ground, that's what is their real wealth. The, the issue is not the money. The money is a coercive unit because of the corruption. Because of that, they can keep it scarce to keep us from having it. Yes. And the more we have... I was just going to say, I agree with so much of what you're saying, but there's one point that I want to kind of get back to, and it's getting back to that hammer. And essentially, you know, holding a hammer in your hands doesn't fuck with your dopamine, you know, holding a a hammer in your hands. We really have to get into studying money is a deeper than that. It gets deeper than what we're using money for. That's an, it's an extrinsic reward. And so there's a fantastic book called drive by Daniel Pink and uh, Alfie Cohn has done, you know, a lifetime's worth of research into motivation and drive and really what, rewarding people for tasks and punishing them without them does to people's brains. So when we really get down to studying what money does or the extrinsic rewards, separate money from it, just say it's a reward. It could be anything. It could be a slipknot ticket, could be a carrot, could be whatever. Giving somebody that reward for the task makes them perform worse at it. It, it decreases their uh, creative, critical faculties, their creative thinking, because subconsciously they're focused on that reward. So you apply mm. that to motivation. You know, uh, money it, it immediately, you know, you give somebody a little whatever, whatever the reward is, you give it to them immediately, they get a little five minute boost of energy, like it's a cup of coffee. But if you do mm-hmm. that task repeatedly, their motivation drastically wanes, whereas the people yeah. in the experiments who don't have the money, their their motivation is not waning. And even the Federal Reserve of Australia, I think, did these experiments, and they could not get them to fail. Like they tried them again and again and again, and they couldn't really reckon with their own findings that the foundation of mm-hmm. our society is really inverse to what we think. And then you get to the really deepest root of it is that it hits your the same dopamine receptor as cocaine, as something you know that is a destructive substance that makes you less risk averse, that makes you more likely to do risky shit and makes you want more. And then you need more all the time to replenish that feeling that you mm-hmm. get from it. So there's the addictiveness that is greed, which is really a structural uh, response to this substance that we use to structure our reality. And so I would you know, put that as capitalism. Well, in, in general, also to, to piggyback off that, I mean, they've done numerous studies now as well, where they where they where they actually it's it's very reproducible, where money actually makes people much more prone to act unethically in order to acquire more money, even just the thought of money, not even putting money in front of somebody, they'll actually just tell people to think about money, and then perform certain tasks or play certain games or take candy out of a bowl or things like that. And those people will often act more unethically just in general, simply because the the, the thought of money or something like that is there. But I completely agree with what you're saying. And there's actually another book too, but we want to get these uh, people on the show too, called Capital is Power. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that book or read it. I I haven't read it myself, but it's kind of a subject that I really want to dive into as well, because I'm very curious, you know, how it all relates. But, But I completely agree with you. It's all part of the same system. And essentially money is a tool. 
absolutely agree with you there. And um, it's it's really a tool in the, in the whole you know big machine of things, which which involves private property, it involves trade, it involves debt, you know, and all these things coerce together to make you know this system that we call capitalism essentially. And and there are people out there. Uh, have you ever heard of Colin Turner or, or the work that he's done with like ShareBay and things like that? He has a really interesting thing because he doesn't say you know money is the problem. He really kind of comes and says it's not money, it's trade. An actual trade-based system is the problem. And the more I kind of look at it, the more I tend to agree with his point of view, essentially, because why does everything have to be trade? Why does it have to be a transaction, essentially? And the answer is, is it doesn't. It doesn't have to be a trade-based system. We have the technology now. We have the capability to eliminate trade altogether and eliminate that profit incentive that comes with the trade. And we and we have the ability to eliminate the private property. We have the ability to eliminate debt. We have the structures and systems right now to form cooperatives and things like that where they're equal ownership and get back into more of a commonly owned system to where everybody is essentially equal ownership, equal say, contributing equally. And, and the terms that we've kind of used to describe this is exiting more of a trade-based or transactional-based system or, tra or trade-based reciprocity to where everything has to come through, you know, exchanging your labor for dollars and hours to, to essentially acquire everything you need on a daily basis. So exiting a trade-based reciprocity or transactionally-based reciprocal system and creating what we like to call a systemic, you know, a systemic reciprocal system, which is essentially kind of the same sort of ideas like, you know, Peter Joseph and the whole resource-based economy and everything. But I don't really like to call it resource-based economy because it's kind of an ambiguous term. We try to try to really explore these ideas for what they are. And, and to me, that that more adequately describes exactly what it is, a systemic systemic reciprocity, essentially, where you have this system that takes care of you and it eliminates the trade altogether. Right. And, and by doing this, you eliminate that incentive, which is also the profit incentive, uh, you know, for people to acquire and hoard more capital and more wealth. And it's not like we're saying, oh, that this should this, you know, capitalism must be abolished. We have to just eliminate private well, property and debt and trade and all this yes, because that wouldn't work. <laughs> I mean, it, it may be in the long, long term, but what we really want to do in the, in the shorter term is, is to experiment with systems and structures that actually obsolete those things that they work better than those systems. And it can be proven, you know, through experiments and through research that a systemically reciprocal system probably would in the long term work, end up working better than these monetary trade-based systems. And the, and the main reason for that is because of the monetary system and the way it works, you have to generate activity essentially for everything that you do, that you have to get a job, you have to commute to work, you have to, you know, commodify yourself and your efforts in some for, form or fashion in order for you just to acquire the necessities that you that you need to live. However, if we were in a systemic reciprocal system like the ones we're describing here, you don't have to do that. It eliminates so much of the unnecessary activity that has to occur just in order to keep things going on a day-to-day -day basis right now. Um, <laughs> I, I think you're putting a lot of energy and belief in automation, which I think if that was the answer. The March of the Robots would have already replaced all the workers. Um, I don't think that that's even remotely real at this point. And uh, Andrew Yang and their idea of universal basic mm -hmm. income, you know, that, that whole thing is a crock of shit, quite frankly, because you already seen during this inflationary period of time, 
what would have happened if every sucker got a thousand dollars, but yet at the same time, everything went up to $1,500. Oh yeah. No, I, you know, I completely agree that the Andrew so, Yang thing is, is, is totally would never work, but you know, it's really interesting. I mean, Stephen Hawking had a quote not too long ago. He was like, we're already headed in that direction because you know, it, we could have everything automated and, and machines and robots in, in the future. You know, I'm not talking about tomorrow, but, you know, maybe decades or even if it's, you know, 100 years in the future, something like that. And it's really going to come down to who owns those systems, whether they're going to be commonly owned, you know, collectively by society or whether those systems and structures are going to be owned by people at the top in a hierarchical fashion, they because they're be already automating the all these chamber. kinds of jobs. They're, I mean, I just I just saw an article yesterday that, you know, fast food robots are becoming like a very common thing. We could eliminate probably 75 percent of the jobs that are out there right now. We could we could probably automate. I don't know, is at least 80 to 90% of production at this point would be my guess. Maybe I'm off there or something. But in any case, you know, it's kind of more of a transitional thing that I think we would get to. It's not just something, you're right, it, it couldn't happen tomorrow. It would, it would be something that would be a transitional element that would happen over years or decades even, you know, and, and it's, it's not something that is re we're ready for right now, for sure. I just like to cut in there real quick. Um, I think, Steve, this is something I wanted to talk to you about. This is kind of one of my other issues with the MMT perspective, and it's uh, basically into the nature of employment and this term full employment, which to me is kind of a nightmarish term because really we're in this kind of bullshit jobs economy already where so many of our jobs in our society are, you know, automatable or completely bullshit or they only cyclically reinforce the system you know you have like sign waivers and things like that and i just think that essentially you know we one of the core problems with our society right now and one of the problems with our monetary system and i think interest being attached to every dollar so that there's more debt than money at all times it's unquenchable that requires constant and infinite growth in the system at all times which is one of the real reasons it's a, that we're overshooting our ecology and we're basically ripping more life out of the world at all times to turn it into money, you know, then the, the nature can really replenish. So I'm, I'm curious, I'd like to kind of press the, press that aspect of, you know, the, the full kind of gamut of the MMT solution. Um, first things first, modern monetary theory focuses on a federal job guarantee. A federal job guarantee is not bullshit job. Sorry, David Graber, love you from the grave. Um, uh, Graber's recent work, um, the dawn of everything, um, with Wengro was a great read, loved it. Very, very good book talking about different modes of production and very, very interesting, uh, understanding about the way various elements of society were formed, disformed, seasonally formed, you know, women running sometimes men running sometimes all kinds of different flavors of, of society were, were laid out through time. Love the book. Fantastic. But this concept, the, you, this is why when I start getting red-faced and veins in the forehead and doing my yelling, screaming, and stuff like that, when you're in a relationship with somebody and they start telling you, you did this, you did that, you did the other, and it's like an empirical statement. Like there's no... You're like, that's not true. But they said it so empirically, like, of course that's true. But, but it's not true, right? Bullshit jobs are there because we live in a capitalist society 
that capitalizes on labor. So these jobs that are there are based in a capitalist environment meant to keep control. Again, mm-hmm. it's not the money system. You could do whatever you want with the money system. It's it's the control of capital. Okay. Right. And it's it's in, but you they're not the same thing. So I art just outright reject the concept that money is doing this as opposed to capitalism is doing this. Well, they're kind of two sides social, of the same coin, essentially. But I, what, what, what do you think of socialism? What do you think of communism? What do you think of anarchism? What do you think of these various uh, things? I, I think mm-hmm. that if we have one shock to society with a, a cataclysmic event, all your automation's gone. An EMP pulse, you're right. gone. It's the same thing it's, with capitalism, just, though, right? But I'm not a capitalist, so you're not talking to Except me. Except worse. Mean, kind of, so, again, so, so, what, like that. so I'm curious <laughs> what kind of system it is that you're advocating. Oh, I'm looking at more of an eco-socialist perspective. I'm coming from mm-hmm. a standpoint of, like when you were talking and you were talking about universal basic services, mm-hmm. that's, that's my language. I talk that all the time. Sure. I say we need universal basic needs taken care of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, one of the saddest, most challenging aspects of explaining the government created unemployment by putting a tax on the hut, so to speak, right? That's, the first unemployed person came the minute there was a tax imposed on the hut. Mm-hmm. But that's what kept that cycle going. However, what MMT would say is you created this problem by instituting the tax. Now it's your job, government, to create the solution to that problem. And so the federal job guarantee is not what we're talking about here. It's not this soul-sucking stuff Graber talked about in bullshit jobs. We're Mm -hmm. talking about literally serving the local community, things that matter to you, what you want to do, and turning that into a quote-unquote job, right? So there is a payback to society, not to the man, right? This is to your neighbors, not to some oligarch. This is Mm -hmm. for your community, not you know, somebody else to steal from, right? And so the idea here of creating full employment literally is a counter to subsidizing shit wages from someone like a Walmart who, if you had the UBI, they would keep their crap wage and they say, well, look, you're getting this plus your UBI. You're fine. Shut up. Go home. You know, get get out of here. We don't, you don't need a raise. What we're trying to do is we're trying to provide a countervailing measure because let's be fair. One of the most important things about where we are today, not in 500 years, but right here, right now is we have a money famine. Okay. And it's intentional because of the lie, the big lie, the great lie money, the, all the evil that you're talking about is because of the false scarcity that has been put there intentionally Mm -hmm. because of the capitalist class. Some of the, the secrets, some of the, the thoughts that were said out loud recently during the inflation bullshit conversation, right, was workers have too much power right now. We've got we've to claw back some of the workers' power. Workers have too much power right now. So you understand that they are fundamentally using the hammer as a bludgeoning weapon, as a blunt force weapon. They're not using it to create the society that we would want. Okay. So I reject the concept that it's money is the problem. I reject the concept that we're stuck in bullshit jobs, that full employment naturally means bullshit jobs. I reject Mm -hmm. that outright because I don't agree with it. 
I think most people enjoy doing something. And if you can craft your own work and serve your own community and have your universal basic needs, which is one of the key things we advance, and also be able to have the pride and the, the connectedness of community, I think that's a win across the board. I think that's the first bit of connected tissue since Ayn Rand wrote The Fountainhead and freaking all the bullshit about John Galt. I mean, we've been living in this makers and takers world forever because of the Ayn Rand taint and the Milton mm -hmm. Friedman taint and that monetarist taint. And so, so much of what we believe, one final story to put it all together. This is such an insidious mindset that if you look, do you all remember Roseanne, the first round when Roseanne first came on the scene, it was long running show. And then they went away for a while and they came back like a decade later. And Roseanne, it was right after uh, Hillary lost to Trump. Hmm. And the first episode, the very first episode, welcome them all back. Roseanne and her sister get into a fight. And Roseanne is mocking her sister for voting for Jill Stein. Because after all, you crazy socialist, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money, right? So this is what 11, 15 million people watched in real time then and hundreds of millions more after that watching the replays. They hear this reinforcement. And so uh, so many of the things we just think are so, to quote, you know, the great Mark Twain's, what we think we know just ain't so is the problem kind of thing, right? We keep thinking we know certain things because that's what we've been conditioned to believe, but they're not real. So this is where the not real, when you talk about money not being, these are the not real things. Money is not taxpayer dollars. That's a Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan creation intended to mind meld people into believing that there are certain types of people that are good and deserving. And there's certain types of people over here that aren't so good and aren't so deserving. And so this is the neoliberal capitalist order that we are living under and all the rules that go with that, all the mindsets that go with that, all the debt capture that goes with that is from that. It's not the money. The money itself doesn't have to work that way. In fact, if you listen to Warren Mosler, he would tell you flat out, we should set a zero interest rate policy forever, forever, in forever. No more selling of bonds. And if we sell the bonds, we sell them short term to help out with pension plans or whatever. But even that we don't believe in because we believe that the government should simply fund it, should simply provide that measure. Right. And the reason why you have any kind of money system, in my opinion, is both a way of making sure, for example, people don't take more than what they need. And, and, and because of the way capitalism is, it's all about creating cheap junk, trash, planned obsolescence, all these things to force us to buy. But you saw what happened during the pandemic. The, it, it, all of a sudden, you could see China from the, sun, from the outer space. All the smog had stopped for a minute. All of a sudden, we saw that people were doing without a lot of things that they thought they had to have, but they just weren't there. I mean, toilet paper not being one of them, but you get my point. <laughs> there was a lot of things there that we learned about ourselves that we didn't think were possible, that we suddenly learned were possible. Lots of people are working remotely now. Lots of people are no longer having to physically go into an office to do that bullshit job. Many people are learning how to work within this space. And mind you, 
you got to realize that you've got to convince a huge number of people. Forget going moneyless for a minute, because I'm not on board with that, just full disclosure. But if you just look at people understanding that we can have nice things, just something as simple as free college, instead of investing to support the training, education, and development of multinational corporations that already are flush with cash, why don't we provide education as a right, as a basic service that people get Mm -hmm. because we need it? Why not provide these things because they are public work and they're needed? Not because we have money, not because you have money, but because it just makes things flow, right? This is a lot of what you're saying. I think a lot, we're, we're in alignment with the, the, the heart, if you will. The heart is aligned. But there is, in my opinion, and, and I believe most people's opinion, many people's opinion, there is a need to be able to ensure certain quantities, to ensure, I don't want to say rationing, but there is a sort of a control mechanism that society needs. Now, the problem is who has got the control, right? That's, that goes back to one of your earlier statements earlier about the democratizing of the commons, to bring back the commons, to, to have the public purpose reinvigorated, to remember what it means to have not private property, but public space, right? And, you know, one of the great, I, I mean, I do a lot of adjacent podcasts. So if you ever listen to Macro and Cheese, you know, I did some great work with Jamie Skillen on the national parks and the mass push for privatization of the parks. We're looking at every aspect of our society, anything that can be privatized from even social security. If we can find a way to privatize social security, then Wall Street can make more money off of that too. And so what does the United States do? The United States then in turn pushes this privatization scheme further and further out in the rest of the world. I mean, we're exporting neoliberalism to the UK as they try and dismantle their healthcare system. We're pushing it to Australia, where we're trying to help them dismantle their healthcare system. Each mm. of these things are aspects, not of money, but of the pursuit of capital and, and the, the structure and the rules and regulations surrounding capital. So sure. I believe the power dynamics of capital are what our, our shared enemy is. Mm. Um, you, you have reduced it to money. I disagree no. with that. I agree no. with the rest of it. I mean, we're so closely aligned. It's not funny. It's just that there's certain elements here that I think are very, very foundational that we're, we're going to end up finding some points of disagreement on. Uh, I just want to say Amanda's had her hand up for a little while. I think she's got something to say. I want hey, to piggyback off of that as well, but. Amanda sure. is not as uh, she's not as brutish as we men. She doesn't. She waits patiently. <laughs> and I will let anybody with green ears can say what they got to say. Go. For I, it. I did just want to say <laughs> I, I, I want to catch that moment that. there that we're that there is great alignment here and that I I appreciate you, Steve. You're yeah. a good comrade, a good compatriot, and you're somebody Thank that's you. consistently out there putting out truth and just you know going out there with your heart. You know this is this isn't just cold mechanical economics, you know, numbers on a screen. This is really giving a damn about human life and value and, you know, trying to create something that's better. And so anybody that is in that place, I want to work not to disagree and just frictionalize those disagreements, but to, you know, find cohesion. So I love it. Thank you. That's a beautiful point to highlight and, uh, you know, tolerance and patience will take you very far. And that obviously is a sharp contrast to corruption as we know it in today's uh, economics. Um, and you said something earlier that I really grasped onto uh, 
you said that we also need to start a movement against corruption and coming from where I'm coming yes. from, my mind is trying to uh, understand how can we do that when our entire society is based on something that creates inequality inherently, we would say inherently. Uh, going back to the hammer reference, it's neutral. So let's say money's neutral. And if it is, then, then what is the beef? What is the meat of the logistics of this? How do we take money from its uh, seemingly inherent corrupt nature and turn it into something that can be equitably distributed amongst people so people can then can then equitably access their basic needs to me it sounds like and seems like a lot of unnecessary steps and we can just get rid of the middleman and i really want to understand where you're coming from on that so when you look at government right we none of us have lived in a society with a decent government we're too young you guys are definitely too young to have lived in a society with a decent government I know in my 53 years, I have never seen a decent government in my life ever, not ever. Um, and, and so everything that we know is through a tainted lens. We have literally never experienced what it would be to have popular control. We have never experienced real democracy in our lives. We've never experienced what the will of the people is. Even when we think we have, even when we've gone to the election booth and voted and everything else, we have literally never experienced what it means to be a part of that. And so as I think to myself, you know, I, we did a podcast series called the new untouchables and it was literally on the, uh, the elite control fraud that has gone on since, well, well before the savings and loan crisis, but starting with the savings and loan crisis, going through the repeal of Glass-Steagall, going into the um, Fannie and Freddie and the countrywide scams and all the rest of the, the bullshit that went down uh, that brought us to, uh, you know, these synthetic CDOs and all these other things that brought the entire world economy down in 2008, 2009. And there's a great documentary series called The Con um, that goes into this. And there's great people like Bill Black, who was a genius legal mind that actually went after the Keating Five, uh, brought them down and has been on the heels of the countrywides and the rest of the criminals ever since. They have been fighting tooth and nail to show that what happens is, is that you create these leviathans, these massive entities, these beasts, and then you don't create the, the countervailing uh, auditory or audit uh, mechanism or the, the, the enforcement mechanism to counterbalance that, right? Everything has to have a counterbalance at some level. Otherwise, things get so disconnected that they, they start functioning in deformed ways. And I think to myself, I went to school with a guy who broke his leg. And his father didn't have the money and there was no health insurance to speak of. So the father set this guy's broken thigh bone and, and tibia. Uh, what is the, what is the little bone in the lower leg? I can't remember what it's called. I think it's tibia or fibula or whatever, but he broke two bones in his leg. The father said it, this guy was a world-class football player. And for the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. Okay. Mm. He had a bowed leg giant, but one leg was bowed. Like he'd been on a barrel. The other one was straight. This guy had back problems. He had all kinds of problems. Why? Not because he was born screwed up, but this thing warped him. It literally screwed everything. So his entire worldview was based on walking with a leg that had been butchered. 
just destroyed, right? We have been living our lives based on a lie. And so everything we think we know has been tainted by those lies. And so getting to corruption, getting corruption out, people have got to believe that it's even a thing. People have got to believe that it's even wrong, right? A lot of people have gotten so conditioned and callous that this is just the way it is, that there is no alternative. And with the distractagon news that comes out and keeps you focused elsewhere, you never, ever focus on it. So people just always know something's wrong. They know they hate their life. They know that everything is crappy and cruddy and they don't understand why. We're here to tell them why. We want to tell them why. And so creating that anti-corruption movement, I mean, you got folks like Represent Us that are out there that do some of this. You've got you know, folks like the group that did the docuseries, The Con, that's available on Netflix. Um, there's a lot of work out there that's bringing this stuff to light. But the fact is, is that corruption is very much a part of our lived experience. Go ahead, man. I just want to play off a couple of things you said there that um, one, you said the, the money famine, and that really just immediately took me to exactly where I found this newspaper, which was a little southern fried food place. All the vegetables on the menu were fried. <laughs> And it was just in this blighted region of Cumming, Georgia, which is where my, mo my mother lives right now. And every building in, within miles was just withered, dead. And I just, these people have this crazy newspaper that's created by some, some Chinese uh, religious cult that was uh, you know, pushed out of China. And the subtext of this whole newspaper is destroy China, destroy China, wipe them out. But it's just written by- The Moonies, huh? conservative dude no they're, they're called the the fulan gong and i'm not going to speak too much about them i don't know them but what they're doing is is emboldening a bunch of conservatives to uh be a mouthpiece for destroy china but yeah i, I just i i see those people clamoring for this absolute bullshit this distract the gone completely fake news just every word of it is completely false or it's one piece of truth that's manipulated into making them think this and it's pushing yeah. them directly into the, the hands of these people telling them oh no we can't create more money that will that will make you poor and then just like they're poor already you know and i just think yep. about the corruption when you say the word corruption i want to kind of tie that into something you said earlier about saying that it's just money and I, I, I encounter that a lot in saying this in our movement being called Moneyless Society, all those things, that it's not just money. It's, it's really more than anything, it's thinking in terms of systems and thinking in terms of the kind of relationship, the trade-based quid pro quo, I give you this, you'd give me this, then we're done, sort of relationship that money is. Like I spoke to uh, uh, some, someone who was native who talked about their monies were a kind of like feathers or shells that was a form of trust that said, I give you this, you, someone has lots of feathers on, oh, that's a trustworthy person. So it, it's really getting deeper into the relationship of trade and of markets that are so violent. And I, I would love to you know, help sort of push you into that recognition that this is a corrosive social pollution. And that if we base our society- I think markets society, are that. I agree with a lot of what you just said. I just think that money is not really the problem. Well, it's not, there's no one problem. And I think that's, that's something that really- we all have to reckon with the complexity and the interconnectedness of everything. And that's, I think, no matter what our solution is, it has to be a holistic systems change. I, we cannot change pieces of the system. We have to change the whole system. And money as it stands today has become the highest leverage point, the system of systems. It all, so much of it actually circles back into the creation of money in itself. And Marx talked about this. And you know, this, is, this really goes back to, I think about a Graeber uh, speech where he's talking about um, people, this anthropologist goes to a tribe and they all come and give her gifts. 
And she says, what do I do? Do I have to give them back gifts? Do I have to give them this back? And someone says, okay, you have to give them something back. But if you give them back something that is equivalent to what they give you, then you're basically saying, okay, you don't trust me. I don't, you don't want a relationship. So when we use this, this, you know, filler, this medium of exchange, where we don't really need to form this relationship and you repeat those transactions, essentially it's an antisocial act of saying, I don't trust you. You know, I don't believe you, whatever it, part of it is accounting. We can do better accounting through systems, you know, through digital feedback, through, you know, the mechanisms that corporations currently use to keep stock. They're not keeping stock. A target is not keeping stock of the pantyhose on the shelf by, you know, sticks, you know, they're using computers and we can do that to, to account for our resources that we're using in our world and our relationships. But essentially what I'd like people to understand is that it's not just money itself. Like, because you could have your own little island community and you could be trading and doing things like that. I think that would ultimately create an unstable situation that is unsustainable over time. And when you repeat that uh, trillions of times and make it the foundation of your society, corruption is inevitable. That it, it, it we can, I was going to say, we can make changes to the monetary system and take interest out of it and things like that to make a difference, but it will ultimately crash the system. That if we don't have, you know, job growth, you know, ballooning at this rate, if we don't have infinite growth of profit and all these things, then the system itself is going to crash. So more than the just system, it's not the system. When it, so I, I think it's very important to look at what a capitalist system looks like versus what a socialist system looks like and what the use of money would be and what the use of government is. I mean, in some space, I mean, like I, I, I talked with Michael Alberts, who is a, uh, a renowned anarchist and a friend <laughs> of Noam Chomsky and, and so forth. <laughs> and um, he, he, he is literally, um, he wrote the book, No Bosses, and really, really big on eliminating hierarchy and organizations and, you know, very, very broadly just wiping away the nation state, wiping away so many things. I don't agree with him in all, all these things. I mean, I'm very much a leftist. I don't go to anarchy. I stay probably in the socialist communist zone. Um, but, you know, they, these guys, you know, they, he was talking quite frankly with me and we talked about the existential uh, climate crisis. And he said, you know something? He goes, as much as I want an anarchist world and I'm fully devoted to trying to bring about an anarchist world, um, I recognize that the existential climate crisis we have today requires some form of authoritarian direction to get us through it because we're, we've, we've lost too much time. Now we're in a position where we absolutely must take action. And sadly, there's a lot of people that don't believe they don't understand whatever. And, you know, you go to the, watch that great, you know, movie, uh, don't look up and, and you can see how easily distracted people are. And that distraction that you saw is a function of capitalism. This is a function of that, that capitalist world, that capitalist ideology. I, I want to kill capitalism. I, I, I want to be the guy holding the Glock, yeah. you know, the gun turned sideways with a really cool superhero stance and just bust the cap and capitalism said, that's the only time I ever want to use a gun right there. I want to just take capitalism out. But other than that, I'm a pretty nonviolent guy. And, I, you know, and I think to myself, the systems that we see today are a direct result. And 
and again, I, I, I've read extensively my, uh, you know, everything from Marx and Engels, Rosa Luxemburg through Lenin and Stalin, Mao. I've, I've, I've gone through many of the great thinkers of yesteryear and, you know, and I look about what, what does the future hold? And this is where, you know, some of my interests in, in moneyless society like things become far more closely aligned just simply because I know what is possible, right? But I also have come into agreement with those who would suggest that even in Star Trek, you know, they, they used a form of money. They, they actually did jobs. They, you know, they still worked. They, you know, I mean, who, who, who's in charge of the Star Trek enterprise? I mean, I know it's a science fiction, but my point is, is that there's still hierarchy here and there, right? It's not like, there's certain things that work and there's certain things that don't work. If you've ever started an organization, I've started two now. And I can tell you one of the most challenging things is people think they want a democratized workplace. People think they want this flat organization. That's what socialism is though, right? Well, Definition. not exactly. I, I mean, people a lot are not working for the man. Yeah, I was going to say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't boil it down. It's just a matter of I own the building and therefore you work for me versus we all work together. But there's still – you have to do some more research. There's more to it than that. And I'm not going to waste a lot of time talking about you know, co-ops and ways of managing co-ops and things like that. There's a lot of good research out there. It's not my uh, number one forte in terms of like being the guy to talk about it with. Um, but – Suffice it to say, there is enough of that out there that I, I see a society where we have equality, where we're not chasing down wars for oil and wars for resources because we have a cooperative society. Um, I, I, I see uh, differing interests regardless. Uh, you know, blind trust is stupid. <laughs> I mean, you, you love your spouse and all that stuff, but everybody, trust is such a challenging act, no matter what you're dealing with your family, you have a certain level of trust in this local family. Then beyond that, you have a, a stronger, you know, bond, but not as strong, but a bond with people outside that circle. And then as that ripple effect goes out, you, your, your trust diminishes because you don't have the relationships you don't have. And, and that could be without money. That could just simply be, you know, hey, I, I don't like what you did with my wife, or if you have a wife, even if, if you have the construct of marriage or whatever. I mean, I think Graeber talked extensively about that in the, the Dawn of Everything, you know, the, the most recent book that, you know, well, his last book. Um, I, I just I just don't think it's a, I don't think some of these things that you believe are just, that's it. There is no alternative. That's what it is. So therefore, I, that's the stuff that I think we would probably have a little bit of a disagreement and probably spend more time on uh, dissecting what you consider to be empirically Boolean. It is or it isn't where I would suggest that there are alternatives and there are more than one alternative. And um, I would suggest money is not the devil necessarily. I would suggest that the capitalist system and the capitalist accumulation is the devil um, and that it, it in and of itself is what breeds the corruption, not the money per se. 
Uh, but again, we're not going to necessarily agree on that, and that's okay. You know, I was, we don't I was have just going to say that to to all that. There's a lot that I disagree in there. Um, healthily, there's a lot that I really do agree with, and but I don't think that there's like one you know hammer of reality that we're all going to be smashed into. There's, right. I think that nature is a dictator. Absolutely, the physical reality of what we're doing to our planet is untenable and unsustainable. The deep root causes of that are just debatable, and it takes time to discuss these things. I assume yeah. you have a, a great deal of knowledge, and you know there's there, there's a lot of things you know that I don't know. But I would also assume that you know, or, or just know in my in my bone knowledge, my gnosis, that there are things that I've read and experienced and seen in terms of these dynamics playing out over time and the roots of them that I you know we just have to share with each other, and that's the sure. I, I would just you know as it stands now, I would I would love you know we have a bit more time in this episode. Matt, I think, is burning with the desire to uh, hammer us into that that futuristic society that we can all be but, um, no yeah, honestly I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm in much more agreement with you guys than you probably think really like, go ahead i was just gonna say that uh yeah I, I just i love talking to you steve i think you're a great guy i love how open-minded you are i love how you can just get in there and wrestle with ideas and play with them and and you're just you're not you're not uh blasting people with this is it you know and i i just right. respect that genuinely and i i respect as i said before anybody who is day in and day out getting up and fighting to expose these lies and to, to, to get people thinking about truth. I think ultimately what is going to bring about this change, no singular person can conceive. And I don't put any trust in a hierarchy to say this is reality. I think that a, a system that frees us, the people, to collectively make decisions and work together and truly cooperate is going to get that's that's going to be the solution you know and i think that has different stages and we'll get to yes. different places parts of that in different stages but i think ultimately that world that we talk about is beyond possible and i would argue and potentially you know we could have other shows and keep discussing this i would argue sure. that that's the the only way like forced through the bottleneck of climate change that we really can get there is through what we talk I, about on this program otherwise we wouldn't I, have this program you know we wouldn't be talking about it <laughs> Sorry, Matt. I, I agree. No, I yeah. agree. I just want to say real quick, and I'll give it sure, to Matt, sure. but I just want to That's thank fine. you for what you just said. I feel, feel that that was a really uh, nice way of uh, tying up what we were just talking about, because ultimately, we who knows, right? I mean, really, at the end of the day, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Um, I, 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 I tremble at what would happen when the part of the Canary Islands falls into the ocean. And all of a sudden, the tsunamis start taking out coastal communities around the world. I, I tremble with the thought of when the ice shelf melts and all of a sudden the glacier slips in, displacing 12 inches of water. And suddenly we've got tsunamis going through New York City. I tremble with the fear of when we have like drought in areas where you've got Hindu and uh, Muslim communities coming together that are lots of times enemies out there in India and Pakistan, what happens when, you know, climate migrants start happening, wars break out as a result of the culture clash and so forth. There's so many factors that are coming up that we don't know about, that we can't predict. And we've got so much disinformation that is making us fight a fake war to get past the blockage <laughs> that they're putting in front of us just to yeah. get to this thing that really is going to take a lot of work on its own in truth, like just the truth, if we had the truth, would take us a lot of time to work through. And so I just want to commend you for taking the time to say what you said. I felt like that was really 
powerful. Anyway, Matt, sorry about that, buddy. Oh, yeah, no worries. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you're really aligned with us in a lot of ways, you know, and, and, and we, we all know that. And it's and it's interesting. And, and I, I just wanted to say, too, that I'm, I mean, I've kind of looked into, you know, eco-socialism, things like that, you know, read, read some marks and, and whatnot in the past myself. And, and if anything, I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, Zach was saying, there's a lot of different, you know, stages and continuums a lot of this all things and it could branch off and go so many different directions it's hard to narrow like socialism down to one particular thing because it isn't it isn't one particular thing it's it's lots of different ideas and structures that can can be combined in various ways and utilized and uh you know implemented in various stages throughout certain you know time periods and for different purposes and things like that i mean one of the reasons why i chose the name moneyless society for the organization back in whatever it was 2013 whenever I created the initial website um, was because I really, uh, you know, to me, the idea of a resource-based economy was very similar to kind of the end stages with what could be termed a communist society or an idealized communist society, right? And uh, well, so, you know, and looking more into it, I was like, well, an idealized communist society would be classless, stateless, and moneyless. That's kind of like the three characteristics that kind of keep coming up over and over again. If you kind of research, you know, like essentially, if you want to boil it down into a nutshell, a classless, stateless, moneyless society, right? And so a lot Anarchy. of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot and with, yeah, with autonomy as well. And um so a, a lot of like the stages that I view, like, you know, socialism, essentially, a lot of people view socialism as a transitional period, you know, from between capitalism to an actual idealized communist society. And I, I define myself a lot of the time, not only as an eco-socialist, but a libertarian eco-socialist. If I had to pick some sort of some sort of, you know, classification, um, you know, what political party or affiliation that I would, you know, choose in the present day, I'd say, yeah, eco-socialism, li libertarian and eco-socialism or something like that and um but it's it's also kind of a you know a relatively t a term that's kind of you know up for grabs it's not you know extremely well defined as, as far as exactly what that means or exactly what that doesn't mean um and to me it's kind of a continuum uh you know a stage of things that progresses you know towards towards a stage of greater cooperation greater autonomy greater abundance greater utilization of ecology and sustainability uh, you know, all those sorts of principles over a period of time, right? And it's just kind of where we are right now, you know, where what stages we can actually implement, you know, and, and, and to me, yeah, it's money isn't the inherent problem money, money is a tool that we're using right now, but it also does have certain side effects, like I detail in my book that I just finished, it's going to be out, we're going to do a soft release next month and a big release in October, same name, moneyless society, the next, uh, the next economic evolution. Um, but I go over systems thinking and feedback loops and one of the main feedback loops that we kind of keep coming across essentially is, is the profit incentive have an entire chapter on the profit incentive and just the uh, the feedback loops that that creates in our economy essentially where money it's there's there's certain how, how familiar are you with systems thinking and archetypes and and things like that very very I, like almost everything I do is broken down in section cuts I, I establish each input mm -hmm. output tool and technique and i evaluate between i mean cut and prove through the sure, sure. system so i, I, I that's my do you know what i'm talking about do, do you know what i'm talking about when i say archetypes and systems thinking or are you familiar with yeah. that 
Okay. Yeah, keep going. Go ahead. Yeah, so like, you know, like for for one is like su- success to the successful, right? Is one of the is one of the archetypes that we kind of keep seeing coming up, you know, as a feedback loop within a capitalist system. And essentially, I mean, money is just kind of the the tool or the mechanism that makes this happen, but more and more capital essentially keeps getting allocated to the successful side of that equation, right? And less and less of it keeps getting allocated to the unsuccessful side. And and this is one of the vicious feedback loops that we kind of keep that keeps materializing within the capitalist economy. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say corruption probably kind of falls into that category as well. And it's and it's very difficult not to say it's impossible, but it's very difficult to kind of eliminate that and keep it at bay, essentially, without it, with these once these feedback loops are going and they're reinforcing each other and you have one side getting kind of weaker and weaker and the other side gets stronger and stronger and stronger it just kind of keeps growing in perpetuity and it's and it's very very difficult to break that feedback loop without some sort of external force coming in and and, and interrupting that and really the external force right now is being climate change and inequality those are the two main external forces that are starting to disrupt this system and the reason for that that is the one resource overshoot and and two corruption and the two have a lot to do with each other um but my i guess my main point is kind of it's it's very hard to eliminate those two things within that capitalist system within this feedback loop that keeps on feeding back uh you know again and again and again and, and it's kind of coming back to what we were saying earlier with with the profit incentive really just kind of being a form of operant conditioning it's 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 positive reinforcement right it's reinforcing sorry i keep hitting my microphone i hope that's not screwing things <laughs> but uh, it's it's reinforcing that behavior, whether or not it's you know conducive to life on planet Earth or or anything like that. We have a positive reinforcement mechanism that is reinforcing this corruption, this resource overshoot, all of these things, and and without some sort of you know balancing loop to really come in that's what they call it you know the opposite of a reinforcing loop is a balancing loop or some interruption to that's that a feedback way of loop. saying a, a revolution of the people <laughs> right it could be a revolution or, a or wiping out all the financial centers yeah Selected exactly or it could be climate breakdown yeah. yeah, I mean they're 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 they're, they're they're moving away from the term climate change now, and they're starting to call it climate breakdown because essentially climate that's crisis, climate breakdown. Yeah, I'm with you. These are scientists that are coming up and saying this now. You know that that they that, that like we really need to call a spade a spade because it's not just climate change; it's climate breakdown, and it's a breakdown of the natural systems in our biosphere that support life on this planet, and that is going to have immense right. consequences. You know, probably with all of our lifetime as long as we're here for a few more decades, you know, knock on wood. That is, that is the decider, you know, that, well, that fate, that nature itself and us in nature is going to decide the future. As we go forward, I, I think understanding what is possible today, being able to make a change today and, and where we are material conditions today and, and the powers that be today and what we're up against today, nobody gets to pick the time that they were born. Nobody gets to pick the demons that they got to wrestle. I may want to be a thousand years in the future where I can do X, Y, Z. I might even be interested in a 500 year jetpack, you know, but, but the demons that we're fighting today, they're busy trying to use the system to show people that the reason why there's inflation and you can't afford gas is because you, you little people 
got too much money during the pandemic. So we're going to claw that away from you. The, the, these are the lies being told, not the futuristic ones, right? So the problem here is right here, right now. And if we didn't have that existential climate crisis that we're up against, this climate breakdown, this climate catastrophe at our hand, feet right now, maybe maybe I would focus on something more futuristic even, right? Maybe my goal would be to look out a, a millennium from that, whatever. I, I know right here, right now, the battles that we've got to fight today, and I'm not even talking about as a partisan voter, I'm talking about as someone that's hoping to see an Occupy Wall Street 2.0 come about, become the vanguard to be a party to bring about these new changes, to bring about the future. Because the existing structure, the duopoly that we face in this country today has got a stranglehold on the changes that we would need to have in, to even put any of this in power. And that includes, by the way, the inclusion of a third party at this point, because the two parties have control of the electoral college even. So every step in this process is controlled by these two capitalist parties. These two capitalist parties, one has bedside manners, one would just kick their mother to the <laughs> you know, curb. So you've got two parties that have the same fundamental economic strategy while simultaneously giving better lip service to social issues or not. We have to provide a real counter to that. And it's not the forward party, by the way. You know, the forward party is just a part of that other party. The only difference is they want to throw a UBI in there like morons. So, you know, let's let's band together and fight. And, and get this UBS approach, this universal basic services. Let's get that concept out there. I, we we could, this is something we can do now, but we have to build that kind of movement now to attack it, not through the electoral process, because we can't win electorally. No matter what anyone says to you, I swear to God, this is the greater lie that we could just vote our way to this future. And the people that are in power, the, the systems, the control that they have baked into their bylaws and baked into every aspect of control mm -hmm. through this hierarchical Democratic Party and Republican Party, the judges, all this stuff, it's all a tandem effort to keep us stifled. We have to do it outside of that system. We have to. And, and I think that there's enough common ground for the next couple hundred years <laughs> that we can sit there and fight that battle collectively. I, I really do think that. So I think that this is a, a heterodox view of the world for sure. We're all thinking heterodox here. We're not in the orthodoxy at all. We're, we're outside the mainstream and we're talking about change. And, um, you know, to, to you all, my change may seem less radical. Um, but just try exposing what I'm saying to regular people and watch the faces go potato. Literal, I mean, just total potato faces when you tell them that taxes don't fund spending. Just that concept alone is so overwhelming to the average person. The idea of doing it without money, it's almost unfathomable at this point. You know, so as you're talking about that progression and you talk about socialism being a transition to communism being a transition to anarchism being a transition to i don't know whatever else the next world brings right we don't know what that is maybe it is that you know what i mean and so ultimately the question is will we get to that next transition before we become the dinosaurs will the next asteroid blow us off the planet and then they start from zero and hopefully somebody unearths these great talks that we have somehow or another was saved on some <laughs> dvd and some crater somewhere in there. 
I would also argue that the more we focus on it, the more we make that our purpose, the faster we will get there, and we could probably get there a lot sooner than 500 years. Building outside of the system is really what we're all about. Steve, I would love this to be the first of many conversations where we where we get into the nope. nitty gritty of like, not this hypothetical fucking automated world, but like, what can we do today? How can we come together and form communities, form <laughs> movements, form alternative systems outside of the political matrix and build change? I'm with you. The left should be happy with Biden. The left should be ecstatic that President Joe Biden has given it everything it wanted. A few examples. Climate emergency is the biggest security threat facing the nation. White people are all supremacists. Transgendered biological males are women and men can become pregnant. Bees are fish, masks are protective devices, diversity is strength, one needs to be a biologist to know what a woman is, meritocracy is a western plot to suppress minorities, objective mathematics is false and a form of white supremacy, inflation can be negated through an increased government spending. What a crock of bullshit. We are so fucked, people. Thoughts on the swamp. Every bureaucracy is a drain on a nation's economy funded by taxes laid on the wealth generating private sector. Biden. Bureaucratism, first cousin of socialism. No prior president has managed to weapon. <laughs> Women now make up nearly 60% of undergraduate college students female professional careers and, and what's going on? Yes, they were socialists. How the Nazis waged war on private property. Racism and a toxic capitalist system. Biden fossil fuel consumption must be ended and carbon dioxide emissions drastically reduced so that humans can supposedly enjoy stable temperatures. The identity politics, slimming down your sub through your subconscious. Some people find the motivation to eat better and exercise through the help of hypnosis. <laughs> How communism sows chaos in politics. Biden in the communist manifesto, Marx and Engels list 10 measures by which to destroy fair exchange and the rights of the individual, which they call capitalism. Fucking bullshit. We are so in trouble, people. The first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy. These, these clowns actually believe this crap. The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degree all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. the proletariat organizes a ruling class to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. Dilbert. Biden. 
We are in a lot of fucking trouble, people. This country is being torn apart by radical left socialist Democrats calling for the abolition of private property, the communal sharing of wealth and resources, the creation of some kind of resource-based economy based on cybernated and networked principles of community feedback, creating a participatory collaborative design system that allows all people free and, and, and easy access not only to the necessities of life and all of its, of its luxuries, uh, sustainably resourced through an access-based system where we share what we have, but they also want equal control of the design of society to engineer out all the, the chaos and instability and unsustainability of the capitalist economy. They claim that money and property and the root socioeconomic orientation of a system where if you have more money and resources than other people below you, you can control their lives and reshape the political destinies of those around you, and that capital, money in its purest consolidated form, allows people to control and reshape society to their whims, and that the whole uh, capitalist system and economy is really an anti-economy that's based on using up as many resources as fast as possible, as, as quickly as possible, and destroying, re the, destroying the rights of human beings and eroding labor powers and, and all, undoing all the progress that's been made over the years to get weekends and, and uh, labor prices and end child labor and all this fucking hippie liberal bullshit. They want to take away our guns. They want to take away our nation states. They want to peel the lines off the borders of the map so we can live in some kind of one world, no government. That's kind of good, actually, <laughs> to me, anyway. So as usual, it's 2.40 a.m. in the morning and I'm editing goofy videos to help sugar the pill to help this complex, nuanced, empathetic systems thinking to go down smooth. This full video will be available for patrons and I promise you it's very funny. If you're listening on an audio platform, please leave us a review and no matter where you're at, please share this with the people that you actually know in your lives and get them to help spread the word. As always, this is a ton of fucking work, as is all the social media and all the outreach that we do to put out there to get you guys to engage with this content. So please support us on Patreon. Reach out, get involved, help us out. Help us help you to help you to help us. That's the whole thing. And when you're out there walking the walk and talking the talk, trying to spread this message, just remember to be patient with people. Don't take things personally. Don't expect them to get it all at once. Arguments don't change people's minds relationships do.